Let's praise his name. You can be seated. It was a Saturday morning in my hometown, a little town with about 3,500 people in it, so everybody knows your name. It's a cheers on steroids. And I had been known there because I was an athlete, and athletes were treated with the utmost respect and usually free breakfast. So it was a really great place to grow up. I went back a few times for the obligatory reunions, but if there had been a superlative list in the yearbook at our school for least likely to be a pastor, it would have been me. There's no way anybody would ever think of that. So I was kind of an anomaly as I got out of my car that morning after 40 years of being away, and I walked toward the funeral home because there I was to perform the funeral for a man who had been my best friend since I was five years old. We were inseparable through all 12 grades. We stayed close to each other in different universities. I was in his wedding. I mean, it was very close to him. He was the one who would say, no politics, no religion. But when the time came, the family asked me to do the burial. So here I was in front of a couple of hundred people most of whom I had grown up with. And they're looking at me, thinking, who is he? Isn't he Betty's son who was here years ago? And wasn't he that athlete? And wasn't he this and that? And little did they know who I was anymore. They had not been told that. But my obligation was not to send my best friend to heaven, because I have no control over that, but it was to make sure that those seated there understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. What surprised me, knowing a handful or more of them really did love Christ and were followers of his, was the reaction afterwards. You know, you, you say something great that you want everybody to know, and it's your expectation that they're going to respond to that positively. I felt rejected. Very few people came up to say anything to me except those who knew Jesus. The rest left in offense and were happy when I left. It was a Saturday morning and the trumpets had just blown in Nazareth. And Jesus had returned home to go to the synagogue. He grew up there. It was his little town. He was known because his father had been a carpenter and he had trained in the same field. They knew a lot about him as a baby and as a young boy and as an adult. And he'd only left home a few months ago, almost 30 years old. So he was well known in this community. And now they had heard things about him because he had been roving up in the Capernaum area. Up there, it was told that he went out into the wilderness for 40 days. We know he was led by the Holy Spirit. We heard also that he came back and that John baptized him. And we know that the Spirit came upon him. 
And then he started preaching in synagogues and teaching, and people were saying, we've never heard anything like this before, and miracles were happening. So word had spread on this morning when Jesus returned to Nazareth. He walked quickly to the synagogue, which was the rule of the Jew, that you went there quickly in the morning after hearing the trumpets, but you could return slowly afterwards, meditating on what you had heard. You see, the synagogues started up during the Babylonian captivity. And then when the dispersion happened, even more synagogues rose because it only took two men of honor, ten men of honor, to be able to form a synagogue. And usually these were men of good repute, men who were well-known, well-liked, holy men who came together so that they would have a place where they could worship. So as they all walked quickly to the synagogue, the rulers would enter first, those ten or more men of honor. And they would sit in front of the ark that was behind them facing north. And in that ark, you would find the law of God wrapped in cloth and the prophets of God wrapped in cloth. And that was what would be read on that day, but not in a, a normal way. It was a very unusual service that Jesus was walking into because the ritual was this, that the speaker, having been invited the day before, would choose his own text. And this speaker would then come and walk up onto a platform where there was a lectern. And from that, he would offer the morning prayers. Following the prayers, he would recite the Shema, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one God. When that was done, he would do 18 benedictions. Now, the people are all standing. And as he gives one benediction, they all bow before the Lord and come back up. He does 18 of those. And after the 18 comes the reading. So Jesus walks in with them and is seated in a place where he can easily be called upon, and the morning begins. And during this morning, as everyone is arranged and the women are up in the balcony area and the children are there, Jesus remembers what it was like growing up here. And he looks out at those faces, and he sees people with whom he's worked, people that he did some carpentry for. He, he knows these people. These are his people. And he's hoping that what he's going to do today is going to bring a response from them because that's what he's there for, to tell them the truth, to tell them who he is, to excite them that this is what they've been waiting for. So the time comes, and he's invited. He steps up behind the lectern, and he offers the prayers, and then he offers the Shema, and then he does the 18 benedictions. And once he is done with that, it's time for the reading. And so the minister in the synagogue, who is of a lower rank, is then responsible for removing the scroll of the law, unwrapping it from its cloth enclosure, and handing it to someone to read. And there were seven different people that had been handpicked to read that morning because that was the tradition. And each one would read at least three verses. And then they would sit down. Now it's time for the prophets to be read. This is where Jesus had said, I want to read 
from Isaiah chapter 61. And so they pull out the right scroll, they unwrap it, and they hand it to Jesus. And standing behind the lectern, he unrolls it. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stopped. He didn't read the last part, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. He didn't read any more of it. He stopped right there. Because you see, this is how it worked. A rabbi could come anytime, having been invited to teach, and he could come up, and he could take the word of God and he could change endings on words and come up with new meanings. And then to the interpreter that was standing here because the people didn't understand Hebrew, he would speak to the interpreter what he wanted it to mean and the interpreter would then say it. Now, if he's a famous rabbi, if he's really elevated, he would have several people between him and the interpreter. And so he would whisper to this one who would whisper to the next and the next and the next. And you've played that telephone game. There's no telling what came out to the congregation. But after all, he was an incredible rabbi. Jesus now rolls the scroll back up, gives it to the minister, and then he goes to this chair that they called the throne, appropriately so when Jesus sat in it. And he sat down and he began his interpretation, but he didn't need an interpreter. He didn't need anybody between himself and the people. Isn't that beautiful? It's just Jesus, because you see, Jesus speaks all languages. So he spoke Aramaic, and he said to the people, shortest sermon in history, eight words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. And that took a minute to sink in. That's not normal. That's not what the rabbi does. He doesn't tell the truth. He's not going to explain this, and Jesus is saying, look, it's real simple. I'm the Messiah. You know, big smile. I'm the Messiah. Uh, I'm the deliverer. I'm the creator of the universe. I made everything that is. I know the end from the beginning. I mean, this is who I am, and I'm here. I will deliver all the people out of captivity. I'll give sight to the blind. And I'll remove oppression from those who are oppressed. I'll do all this. That's who I am. That's what's encompassed in this statement. And their response Silence. Because they're mad. You know why they're mad? Because he didn't read and the day of vengeance of our God. Because this was a people who believed that they had arrived and no one else had. The Gentiles should be destroyed. They're not followers of God. Rome should be destroyed. They're not followers of God. Only we who come to the synagogue and obey the laws of God and the 600 extra ones that we've come up with. Okay, we are the ones who are righteous. We should be delivered, and everybody else deserves vengeance. But Jesus wouldn't read that, and here's why. The first time Jesus came, he came to show mercy. Mercy to you, mercy to me. He came to save us, to seek us, to save us, to deliver us out of our sinful condition. That's why he came. He's saying to the synagogue, I came here to show mercy. Next time I come, it's for judgment. 
But between 61 verse 2 part A and 61 verse 2 part B is history. You see, we still live under the mercy of God. We still live in a time when his mercy is flowing. And that's what we have to learn today is what do we do with the mercy with which we have been shown? How do we take this mercy and pass it on every day of the week to somebody else out there that needs it? And it's explained very clearly in this text because what Jesus says is, the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now that anointing began when Jesus went into the wilderness and the Holy Spirit led him there and then he came out and he was baptized and the Spirit was moving in him as he went and did all of those miracles all over Capernaum. And when he came in here that day, truly the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Well, this is the beauty of it. Listen to what the Apostle John writes in his first letter. It won't be on the screens, but I just want to read it to you. John is saying this to the followers of Christ. As for you, the anointing you received. So he's already saying, you have the anointing that Jesus spoke about. You already have it. The anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. What's he talking about? He's talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, anointing appears 25 times, the term for it. And, and in each of those times, it was, a, it was a moment where something was set apart to a holy use. And the way it was done was you take about a gallon of olive oil and you add all sorts of spices to it to give it a beautiful aroma because God likes to smell us the way he designed us to smell. And that is as a sweet aroma unto the Lord. And that oil then was mixed and it was put on the priest's garments. It was put on the utensils throughout the tabernacle. It was put on the priest himself. Why? As a sign of the Holy Spirit leading in those situations. Three times the anointing is mentioned in the New Testament. That anointing is just that, that the Spirit of God is in you. Now, you received that anointing when you accepted Jesus Christ, when you became a follower of his. Quantitatively, you received all of the Spirit you're ever going to get. He's in there. And you should love that. Because here's what he's going to do in there. The Bible tells us about it, and you're going to learn a lot more about it on Christmas Eve, uh, the Sunday before Christmas, if you come in here, because Alan's got a great message already designed about the Holy Spirit. All I want to say is this. You have everything you need because God has already given it to you, and the Holy Spirit is the one who will fulfill the rest of the promises. This Holy Spirit wants you, first of all, to live in the anointing. How do you do that? Every morning I get up, and I first of all thank God that I got up. And then the next thing I do 
is I usually think of my favorite verse in Scripture, my life verse, Lamentations 3, 22, 23. If it were not for your loving kindness, I would be consumed. Great is your faithfulness unto us. You know, every morning your mercies are new. So I am receiving mercy today. Holy Spirit, wake up. You know, you there? All right, I want you to guide me today. I want you to take me where I need to go. I want you to give me the words to speak. I want you to inform my mind so that I am able to think your thoughts after you and bring everything captive to the word of God. I want to be able to do this because that's why I'm here. Not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a son of God. And I've been given this responsibility as each of you have. You have the same responsibility I do. That is to take this word of God out. What do we do when we have that anointing? Well, the first thing we do is we are going to proclaim freedom. Freedom is best understood if you remember having been delivered from captivity. My brother-in-law, Jim Jones, was captured in Vietnam by the North Vietnamese. They put him in a four-by-four cage and they dragged him for 18 days through the bush toward North Vietnam. He said, the day that the Marine Patrol showed up and freed him was just about the best day in his life. But during those 18 days, he said, I became very close to Jesus. All I did was pray 24-7 because he said, I didn't know what the end would be, but I knew that God was with me. But after he was released, you talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, he had it to the max. You could never put him in a situation where he saw any railing or any bars. If he saw this over here, it would freak him out because all suddenly he's back in captivity. Captivity restricts you, and that's where he was. Jesus has come to set the captive free. Totally. And the Spirit of God does that. If the Spirit of God is in you, you are free indeed. And he is in you. So knowing that, knowing you have this kind of freedom, knowing that you have the anointing of God upon you and asking for it every day, a fresh anointing, Lord. My faith has to be fresh today. I can't live on the faith I had yesterday. I used it up. So I need the faith today to live today. You can't have the Holy Spirit if you don't have Jesus. You see, there is no Holy Spirit in religion. The Holy Spirit is only found in the blessed work of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where we get him from. It's from Jesus who said, I will send you the Comforter. So he's kept his promise. You can imagine then as he's sitting there looking out at this congregation, he's thinking, why don't they get this? I've come to proclaim freedom to them. But he reads their minds, he knows, and he hears them in the back saying, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that just the guy who used to work here? Who, who does he think he is? Is he really proclaiming to be the Messiah? You've got to be kidding me. And Jesus takes his seat on that throne, which was typical because it's something Alan and I have talked about switching to is the old synagogue concept, you stand, we sit. You like that? And he looks out and he says, in the future, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. 
which in different words is spoken at the cross. But then he truly offends them because he said, Elijah, when the rains had stopped and the people were having problems, went to a Gentile to offer God's mercy. Elisha, when the things were difficult, went to a Gentile to meet the need. And what they were hearing was, wait a minute, you're going to move away from the Jews? You're not going to bring any vengeance? You're saying you're Messiah? So what do they do? They all rise up, they grab him, they start pushing him toward the cliff outside the knoll in uh, Nazareth. But he makes his way away from them. They wanted to kill him. Three years later, they said, crucify him, crucify him. They still wanted to kill him. Why? Because they were poor in spirit. They were captivated by something other than God. They were blind to their own condition. And they were just oppressed beyond belief. And that's why this scripture says, to proclaim the good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, set free the captives, darkness for the prisoners. Let's walk through that for a moment because here's what I want to tell you. Your job this week is to get up tomorrow morning, thank God that you're up, praise him, ask him to guide you, ask the Holy Spirit to anoint you, and then wait and see what God will do. He's going to give you one of these four categories of people to interact with this week. Now, here's how we define them, the poor. The poor are moral and spiritual poverty. It's those who no longer know truth. They say there are no absolutes. They are a law unto themselves. Jesus uses the same word in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So he's talking about a spiritual situation. Theirs will be the kingdom of God. They need deliverance from their spiritual poverty. They don't know the truth. They think they do, but they don't know the truth. So you and I, in the power of the Holy Spirit, with the knowledge of the freedom that God offers, we, we walk into them, our neighbor, our coworker, our family, our friend, the occasional visitor that God just puts in your path. And we say to them, do you know that you have poverty of spirit? No, we say, look, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, and we love you too. Now, we're already caring for the poor financially. Here, we're not talking about that. We're talking about those who are so morally declined that they can no longer see truth, whose spirits have not been awakened by the Spirit of God. So you go to those people who are poor in spirit. Secondly, you may find those who are captive, Prisoners of hatred, prisoners of greed, prisoners of lust, prisoners in all sorts of setting. They've trapped themselves in and they can't find a way out. Maybe you've been there. I have. But the Spirit of God sets us free. And so he comes into your life and he gives you that wisdom and that knowledge to help that person who is captivated by drugs and can't get out of it and you help them. God's calling you to do this. You see, that's, that's what's happened is he's given you the spirit. And he said, now go do this for me. This is what your life is about. Yeah, you go to work. 
Love your family. Take care of your children. Top priority. But let me tell you, if you're not caring for the poor and the captivated in the power of the Spirit, you're not doing what God's calling you to do. It's not easy to do, but boy, is it rewarding when you see the life change right before your eyes. Maybe it's the person who is blind, blind to their own condition. That was my friend Bill. When he said no religion, no politics, he didn't understand that there is no Holy Spirit in religion. And on his dying bed in the hospital in Atlanta, I stood by his side and he was in a coma and I held his hand and I explained the gospel again to him. There was no reaction, but I'm not the one that needs to see the reaction. So my prayer is that on that last moment, like the thief in the cross, he found his way into heaven, but I don't know. And so I live with that uncertainty that the day that I get there, he won't be. I know God will wipe away every tear, but it's still going to break my heart. And you know people like that. We've talked to you about your top three. You have a responsibility to teach them to have sight. And the only way you can see truth is through the scriptures. So pray that the Holy Spirit will guide you either to someone who's poor someone who is a captive or someone who's blind. And lastly, what about the oppressed, the people who are broken in pieces, the people who are shattered, the people who are crushed, the people who can't look beyond this far because they don't even think they'll make it this far? You know some of those people. Praying for them is a necessity, but interacting with them is even more important. That you ask, Holy Spirit, lead me today to be able to give some wisdom to this person whose life has been shattered. Teach me how to love them like you would love them if you were sitting there. That's what God wants from us. He's called us to a higher level of responsibility than many churches call people to. And that is, you are the gospel going out into this world to bring people to Jesus Christ. We'll help you with that, but it's going to be your responsibility. Jesus saw all four of those kinds of people sitting right before him in that synagogue, and he knew in his heart, I can relieve the oppression, I can give sight to the blind, I can release the captive and set him free, and I can meet the needs of the poor in spirit. Jesus is the answer. He's the only answer. Now, maybe you came in here today and he wasn't your answer. Today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day that he's speaking to you, that you would come to him and say, Jesus, take over my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and teach me what to do. We'll pray in a minute, and when we do that, I'm going to pray for you. But I want to close with a, a statement to all of us that has to do with how we view God's mercy. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come on back up. And I'm going to tell you a story, true story, about a large church, British church, that had three mission churches out here. And those three mission churches were accustomed to dealing with the inner city type of people and the difficult people in life. 
And so they invited them all to come together at one time. And as they were about to perform communion, as we are in just a moment, down here on the right of the pastor was a judge. He knew the judge, wonderful man of God. Next to the judge was a man who had gone to prison for seven years for burglary, and it was because the judge sent him there. Now here they are kneeling together. And after communion, the judge came up to the pastor. He said, did you see who was kneeling next to me? The pastor said, I sure did. He said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor said, it sure is. The judge said, well, of whom do you speak? He said, well, certainly the ex-con. He said, no, 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 no. I'm talking about myself. And here's what he said. It's not surprising to me that he received God's grace when he left the jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. When he understood Jesus could be his Savior, he knew there was a salvation and a hope and a joy for him. He knew how much he needed Jesus. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. And I went to Oxford. I obtained my degrees. I was called to the bar. I eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact, I too was a sinner. It was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. You are the greatest miracle God has ever done because he has brought you from death to life. This morning, we celebrate that with communion. After those who are serving serve you, hold the elements. We're all going to be taking this together as the body of Christ. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for clearly explaining to us who you are. We receive you, Jesus. We thank you that you sit on the throne, that you proclaim yourself to be the Messiah, that you were kind enough to send us your Holy Spirit to comfort us and to guide us. Lord, if there's anyone in here today who has never received you, let that be this day. Pray this with me, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your spirit. Now, Lord, as we celebrate with you, awaken us. Let us ask for more of your spirit as we participate in communion. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.